Welcome to episode 242 of Destination Linux. Whether you're brand new to open source or a guru of sudo, this is the podcast for you. My name is Michael, and with me today are Jill, Ryan, and Noah. And on this week's episode of Destination Linux, we're going to discuss open source licensing and help everyone navigate this critical part of the open source ecosystem. Then we're going to discuss some disturbing surveillance laws that are currently impacting our friends in Australia. Plus, we have our tips, tricks, and software picks. All this and much more coming up right now on Destination Linux. Chris writes in to say hello to the DLOGs of IT. I'm writing from the other side of the world in Japan. I've been a regular listener for a couple of years, but it's definitely enjoy all of the DL shows. I wanted to inquire to your thoughts on the topic of careers in Linux and cloud administration. I know this is something that you've covered at least one or two programs in the past DL or DLN Extend. I'm specifically considering a rather late career change, transitioning from mostly network and telecom into project management over to Linux and Cloud Services Administration, a.k.a. SRE. Having some trepidation about 50-plus making such a leap, but I need a change, if for nothing more than my own sanity. Part of this transition includes a consideration of getting trained up in the area for which I'm considering a couple of platforms, including a Cloud Guru, a CBT Nugget. I've used CBT Nuggets in the past and found their instructors to be dynamic and engaging and their material to be decent in terms of the content and hands-on. I also like CBT Nuggets from the perspective of diversity. They have courses across a wide spectrum of topics, haven't taken Pluralsight classes in the past, and didn't walk away from them feeling as if the material was sufficient to meet my needs. I'd really love to hear your opinions on the topics of careers in Linux and cloud technologies, as well as training opportunities to transition to said career. You guys and gals are awesome. Thanks so much for your contributions to the community. Chris. And so, Chris, we actually have a special answer from you from one of our other shows, The Pseudo Show, featuring Brandon and Eric. Here's Brandon. Chris, thank you for the email. I really do appreciate it. So right off the bat, you might want to consider staying in the telco space. Many telco providers are making a hard pivot to cloud technologies for running their network. And the heart of that is Linux and cloud technologies like Kubernetes. OpenStack, and of course, the public cloud providers. Whichever way you choose to go, whether that's staying in telecom or moving to general enterprise cloud, the advice is the same. SRE-style roles require good understanding of programming. I highly recommend learning Python. Python is the language of automation and at the core of many of the tools you will use as an SRE, like Ansible. Linux and Kubernetes are very important to learn as well. The CNCF and the Linux Foundation have great training and industry-recognized certifications. You may also want to get training and certifications on one or more public cloud providers, whether that's AWS, Azure, GCP, or IBM. But since you're in Asia, you may also want to consider Alibaba Cloud. Thanks for the email, Chris. I hope this helps. So what I loved about Brandon's answer to this question specifically is he was telling them in the network world, in the telecom world that the listener is a part of, that you don't really have to switch entire industries there because Brandon goes into the fact that in telecom world, actually these cloud services are used quite aggressively. So you could definitely make an easy career transition into another department. And of course, Brandon gives him lots of options there 
or some training that he can take to get that going. But instead of changing entire industries, you could take some of the experience and knowledge that you have, the project management skills, which by the way, are useful no matter what job you have. I don't care if you're going to be a manager, a director, you're going to be an engineer. Project management is a universally helpful skill to have and stay in your same industry, but move over into the cloud world of that. Because behind all of the telecom technologies, there's a lot of cloud and there's a lot of Linux in there. So awesome. Thank you, Chris, for the feedback. And we absolutely love hearing from our worldwide community. What we want you to do is get your official deal and mug, fill it with some coffee or bubbly, sit down on the nearest stool and send us an email to comments at destinationlinux.org and want to join in on the community discussions? Then join the DLN community forums by going to dlnforum.com. This episode of Destination Linux, it's brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new managed MongoDB services, which is a fully managed database as a service known as DBAS. With DBAS, you can focus more on building scalable high-performance apps and less on maintaining the database. You simply offload the MongoDB administration to DigitalOcean. You let them do all of the heavy lifting, all the provisioning, all the managing, all the scaling, the updates, the backups, the security, all the things that you don't want to do unless you're a database admin, in which case you're probably not using the database as a service, in which case you're probably using one of DigitalOcean's pre-built droplets that you can spin up in any database of your choice. But if that's not you, then you don't want to deal with all of that stuff, and then you are back to DBAS. DigitalOcean built this service in partnership with MongoDB, and what that means is together they've ensured that you'll get access to all of the latest releases of MongoDB the document database as well as soon as they become available. Now, as a listener of the Destination Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. Actually, it's even better than for free because DigitalOcean is going to give you a $100 credit when you go to do.co slash DLN dash Mongo. If you go to do.co slash DLN dash Mongo, they're going to give you that $100 free credit and that will allow you to get started on DigitalOcean. You can try all of their service without spending a dime out of your own pocket. Why do they do that? Because they know after you spend, after they give you $100 and you just try it for a few months, you'll be hooked for life like I am. So get addicted to DigitalOcean by going to do.co slash DLN dash Mongo. And of course, a huge thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. We recently celebrated 30 years of Linux with the first ever DLN Megafest. So this week of DL, we thought, what could be better to celebrate that kind of milestone than talking about software licenses? I know everyone is just on the edge of their seat right now, but seriously. Wake up, Brian. I think, oh, 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 licenses. Oh, okay. <clears throat> right. But I riveting think content. Is, this is something that needs to be talked about because licenses are the framework that makes it possible for the open source ecosystem to even exist. So it's right. important that we start out by clarifying, you know, there's many different types of uh, open source licenses and many versions of each license, really. But the discussion is not meant to be like a battle of the licenses. We'll give our opinions, of course, but it's not going to be like a good versus bad discussion. Now, there are several dozen licenses, so we're not going to be covering all of them. We're going to be focusing on the ones that you're going to come across most often online versus whether you're looking at GitHub packages or GitLab packages and that sort of stuff. And at the core of an open source license, it's, it's basically a legal agreement between the creator of the software and the user or the community. And generally, in the Linux community, we're focused on the licenses that allow for the software to be uh, freely used, modified, and shared. 
So that sort of thing. You know, imagine a world where we didn't have to deal with proprietary licenses. What is it that we talk about when you think about a proprietary license coming up? See, Michael, I could see you dreaming there and you looking up in the sky with a smile on your face. Right. And I don't think that was forced because that would be a beautiful world. <laughs> because half the time when we're using this software, whether it's an app you're downloading on your phone, whether it's a website that you're going through and you see this EULA, how many people actually stop and read it? Before joining open source, understanding Linux, getting into yeah. this privacy and security world, I didn't read them. I was just like, yeah, yeah, accept, next, next, next. And all of us were doing that across the globe. We were just accepting whatever terms they were coming up with. And when I think about this more deeply, I kind of think about how the fact that these licenses that we agree to at this time, if you're a corporation and you put out a license for your Photoshop, for your Windows or whatnot, and then I decide as an organization, I'm adopting that product. And I agree to those terms as they are now. What's interesting about these license agreements is they change. They can change them at any time they want. They send you those emails all the time, right? Talking about, oh, we've updated our EULA. And now this thing that I've incorporated into my business, that's now a major part of my business being able to operate, has a license that initially, maybe I even agreed to its terms, but now has these terms that are horrifically privacy invasive or something else. And it's very hard to escape from. So when you think about the importance of an open source license in the fact that this type of thing, there, there are many controls and things that happen in open source license, this type of thing you don't have to worry about. It is a nirvana to think about a world in which we don't have to deal with this type of thing as aggressively as we do with the proprietary software. You know, I'll take the other side of that, Ryan. And I would tell you that I think we owe a proprietary license a, a great debt of gratitude. And here's why. It is only when you can compare the, the extremes that you begin to appreciate what you really have, right? And I'll give you an example of that. I worked at a medical facility for a while, and they had a, a piece of imaging software that was, I think it was like ten fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 per licensed copy. And they had 50 different machines that they had to run. So needless to say, they had a lot of money tied up in this software. And they only got to use it for like six, seven years. And then the company got bought out by a different company. And what originally was the agreement was, oh, we'll activate versions forever. It's, there's really no time that it ever expires. Turned into, oh, no, you have to go on to our paid uh, subscription service or the software is just going to stop working. We won't activate it anymore. And lo and behold, they all of a sudden have hundreds of thousands of dollars that are just tied up with nothing. Right. And they have blue sky and nothing in their hands to show for it. And going through that experience is one of the things that helps me understand how not only how grateful I am to have the piece of software, but how grateful I am that that developer chooses to license it in a freedom respecting way. And I think in absence of having those proprietary license in our lives or having to deal with those headaches or those problems, I think we would, we would become so accustomed to freedom that we would start to slip into the, well, I should just have it because I, you know, in that, that sense of entitlement. So I think a healthy balance. If there's balance no evil, of, how do you know there's good? Right. right what, exactly. what defines good type of argument? That's it's, an interesting yeah, argument. Yeah, it's too. a funny approach because you're uh, when you started talking about it, I didn't I didn't expect your your uh, reason to. I was like, where say, is he going with this? Like proprietary yeah. is good because you understand the pain of proprietary from it. <laughs> 
But really, though, I mean, really, you have that experience, right? You, I challenge you to go buy a piece of hardware or go buy a piece of software and then have a company just arbitrarily tell you that you can't yeah. use the thing that you paid for anymore and then come back and tell me that it's just a, it's a, just a tool, just a license. doesn't really matter. It's just yeah. a tool. It's yeah. a valuable, emotionally attached to a tool. lesson that a lot of people learn uh, the hard way, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So it is, I guess, in a way beneficial, but, you know, ultimately... Still awful. And I think that even if we, you know, had an open source feature, because it still has, like, some of the licenses have obligations attached and stuff like that. So there is still some of that. So I mean, just imagine getting, though, for a second, a mortgage, and you sign these terms to say, hey, I'm going to do a 30-year fixed rate on this mortgage. And then the mortgage company has a right, and even the expectation that they're going to change it Anytime they want the percent APR, they're going to change the terms of how long it takes to pay back. They're going to, they could do whatever. We would never be able to stand for that, right? We would be furious. I mean, these balloon loans and things like that were kind of attempt in the mortgage world to do something like that. But, but the idea is archaic of what that could do. You would have no ability to know 30 years from now what you're going to be able to pay and plan for that. And the same thing goes with software. When I think about businesses adopting software with these proprietary licenses. And after the Copyright Act of 1976, prior to that, everybody was sharing source code. It was like this cool hacker thing, like, hey, I figured this thing out. You can use it over here. And everybody was doing like we do in Linux. Once that Copyright Act happened, but think about today with the EULA, this thing's change constantly. You can, in fact, when you're looking at like privacy for a piece of hardware or a watch or something like that, you'll see these articles that like, oh yeah, this particular brand is your most private. And this is why, and they'll have a snapshot of the privacy policy. Then I would go and I'd look at the hardware site today and see a completely different privacy policy that was completely far more invasive than the one that they were saying it was better against a year ago. So the fact that these can turn at a dime really, to me, makes a proprietary license a very scary option for businesses. And it's probably why you're seeing open source being adopted at such a heavy rate right now in businesses, because it's actually more reliable. The terms are more predictable. Yeah. And I, I yeah. think that's a great point, especially with the whole EULA things changing and the terms of service changing. And also, sometimes they have clauses in those terms where if you agree to it once and they decide to change it, they have to just mm-hmm. send you an email. But if you don't respond, you're automatically agreeing yes. to the next change, too. Well, it's also because of that reason that open source gets gets to progress. You know, the, the proprietary license, you know... Um, you have all these complaints. We have all these complaints about them, but in reality, that helps make our open source licenses even better. And it's actually really good to have a hybrid in between. Like on Linux, you can run proprietary software. If we didn't have that ability, a lot of companies, you know, wouldn't make money on Linux. It's unfortunate, but true. <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess I would add on one of the things before we get into the specific types of license. The, the other thing is it's it's one thing just to say, hey, you know, the, the terms change all the time. And so your 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 expectations have to shift with them. But fundamentally being locked out of your front door. Just imagine if the key on the mortgage was held by the mortgage broker and it and and they decide if and when you can get into your house. And so as long as they agree to keep coming over and unlocking the front door for you, you're able to get into your house. But it constantly is on the back of your mind that at someday they may just decide to not come over with that key and there's nothing you can do about it. 
I like that example. You could mm-hmm. take it further and say because yeah. you can't get in there and actually see the code that yeah. goes on in the, in that in the proprietary world. Imagine that mortgage broker who holds the key also saying, "By the way, you can't make changes to the paint or color yep. or anything inside yep. here because that's oh, all proprietary scary. and that keeps the value of the house up leaving it the color it is, so don't change <laughs> now, anything." So now think about that. Would you call that your house? No. No, I'm it's not your house. house. It's you're renting a house. You're borrowing it from a friend. And open source, freedom and open source, and the licenses that we're about to discuss allow the user to really own that code themselves, even if they weren't the original creator. And I think that's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. And let's talk about those licenses. So there's mm-hmm. a lot, and we already talked about we're not going to be going into every single one of them, but we're going to talk about five of the most common ones. And that is the GNU GPL, the Apache license, the BSD license. MIT and the MPL, which is the Mozilla public license. There's also a thing called source available, but that has nothing to do with licensing. That's a that's someone trying to pretend that they're open source, but they're not really. And th- we're not going to count that, but that is a thing that you might see at some point. But let's start with the GPL. This is a copyleft license, and this means that if you use code that is under the GPL, then your code must also be released under the GPL. The purpose of this approach is to ensure a reciprocal system of like through the ecosystem. So if you take someone's code, then you have to provide your changes to that code because you are required to be uh, releasing it under that same license. And there are, are several versions of the GPL. There's the GPL v2 and the v3 that are both still being used. And the Linux kernel, for example, is using the GPL v2 with some modifications of like add-ons and stuff. But there's also some many other licenses that we already talked about. Let's talk about next the M. MIT license, and it's actually the most permissive license of the of the five. Uh, there's no strings attached. You can basically do whatever you want with the code with this license, and it's easy. It's easy to understand as long as you add a copy of the original MIT license and copyright notice that you're free to do whatever. So according to the one study, actually shows that MIT license is used by like. 27% of the 4 million open source packages that they studied. And that is a significant amount, obviously. So uh, there is pros and cons between, you know, permissive and less permissive and that sort of stuff. We'll get to that a little later. But next, let's talk about BSD. BSD license has multiple versions as uh, some are known as the f- four clause, the three clause and the two clause version of the license. It has uh, minimal restrictions on the use of the distribution. It's similar to MIT, but not as and it's not, it's not do whatever, but this is uh, different than the GPU, uh, the GP, the GNU GPL copyleft license, which has the share alike requirements. Since these versions are vastly different, we are only going to focus on the latest BSD license, which has these types of stipulations. First of all, it says you have to retain the copyright notice, list of conditions, and disclaimer on all redistributions of source code and on all documentation and any other material accompanying the distribution. Uh, You cannot use the name of the organization or contributors in the copyright notice to endorse or promote products without written permission. Uh, And also, Linus said something about, had something to say about this particular license in 2016 at the LinuxCon, which was, over the years, I've become convinced that BSD license is great for code you don't care about. So this is (laughs) an interesting (laughs) approach. And uh, there's also some other licenses. And the Apache license is also considered a permissive license in that it allows users to use the software for any purpose, to distribute it, to modify it, and to distribute modified versions of the software under the terms of the license. The terms are namely requirements to be uh, including copyright, including the license, state what changes you made, and also include a notice of the changes. 
And then next, then the final one of the five is the MPL. And MPL is a very interesting uh, license because it's also considered a weak copyleft license in some people's uh, descriptions. Uh, that's not necessarily to say that it's a poor license, but that's just the description of the, how how it compares to the GPL, for example. Now, hold on, hold on for a second, Michael, because MPL could be Microsoft's license or it could be Mozilla's license. It's so Mozilla's. which one? Because Mozilla's. Some people may not realize that Microsoft actually has an open source license as well. They do have a license. We're not talking about that one because it's oh, not okay. worth using. Darn. But there's the <laughs> Mozilla Public License or the MPL. That's the one we're talking about in this particular case. For those who don't know, Mozilla is the people who make Firefox and many other things. Anyway, so this this particular license seeks to bring balance to the option of having to be copyleft, but also having it more permissive. So it's re- it's bringing balance to the force, so to speak. So it allows you to have less strict copyleft requirements, but not as permissive as the MIT license. The goal is to strike a balance between the companies who love their proprietary software, but want to take open source for a spin as well. This basically means the person using NPL code must make the source code for any changes available so it is copyleft, but they can combine NPL software with proprietary code, unlike the GPL, and as long as they keep the NPL code in separate files. So that's what's really interesting about that particular piece is that the GPL, you're not allowed to mix and mix the different licenses, whereas the MPL does allow you to do it. Linux was not initially released under the GPL license. It actually had its own license that he created, which he Mm -hmm. also called very stupid. He hated his own license, but it was originally not released Mm -hmm. under the GPL license. And I did not know that. It was proprietary in the sense that you couldn't do commercial, but it was uh, open source in, in every other way, which is kind of interesting because like that having commercial is kind of fundamental to the growth of open source anyway. So uh, yeah, exactly. it was really definitely a, something that would that was good that he changed it, of course. So let's talk about the licenses and that sort of thing. Let, let me ask the host. If you have some new software that you're going to make and it's going to revolutionize the world, as Michael we know AI it, bot. Of course, for sure. (laughs) Which licenses are you going to pick and why? So let's start off with Jill. So from a marketing standpoint, I would definitely choose the GNU public license version 2 or the GPL v2 that we have been talking about, like Linus Torvalds did with Linux back in 1992. And... The main reason is is that there are so many companies involved with the GPL version 2 license, and that has led to the huge growth and adoption of open source in Linux. And the beauty of the GNU GPL is that you have the freedom to run it with no restrictions. You can copy it for a friend, study, improve, and tinker with it, and then distribute those changes to the world. And also, one of the very important rules of the GPL is that the GPL insists that the same rights that you received under the GPL be passed on to those you distribute your work to. Awesome. So this ensures continued openness through all generations of my open source software. And I would be honored if someone, honestly, if they would fork it, tinker with it, and use it to fit their needs and make it even better. Very nice. So that's my problem with the BSD license, right? Is it seems like it's a race to the bottom. Like it'll be, how do you, what is the rationale? Like what is the justification for, okay, I have this really cool thing. Oh, we're finally making some traction. Hey, everyone's using my cool thing. Hey, look over there. Those open source guys are getting ahead. 
That's mine now. Mm-hmm. Okay, now we're done. And now proprietary <laughs> moves on ahead and open source starts all over again, right? It seems to me that if we're going to be productive with it, we have to have some sort of teeth behind it to say, hey, all the work that we do matters too. Yeah, it's interesting because Linus saying uh, it's great for code you don't care about. So yeah. I think mm-hmm. that's a purpose. That's a perfect way of describing the BSD license. Not saying there's not a point to its existence, but I think that's a perfect explanation for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's why a lot of companies choose using it because it's the easy license, like Sony does with the PlayStation, and uh, Apple does with Mac OS. The whole problem yeah. I have with a permissive license like the BSD or the MIT is that they are too permissive, allowing right. them to do mm-hmm. whatever they want. Like Noah said, like a company can take code that is open source, make it proprietary, and then not give back because those yep. licenses allow that because they're so permissive. It's, it's just my opinion. Whether you agree with it or not, I, I understand. But this is more of a uh, – if, if I'm going to make code that I want people to use and benefit from, I would like to be able to benefit – from the code that someone else makes on top of mine. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I wouldn't I wouldn't nice. want to basically like, you know, create a platform or a foundation for something and then that becomes something awesome and then I get no benefit from it whatsoever. Like yep. even if it's mm-hmm. just the code bag, it doesn't have like if someone takes the takes software, and this is not about commercialism or anything. If someone wants to take a GPL code and then make a service based around it and make money from it, that's fantastic, and there's nothing wrong with that because you are not you're not hurting the like you're not trying to rebrand it or make a whole new thing and make say like say this is the better version, even though it really comes from this other core project you know this is something that you really can't do with a gpl in terms of license compliance but with the bsd mit you totally can so in my opinion if i was going to make some software and for this purpose you know it depends on the purpose of the software like if it's something that doesn't really have any intent for future like long-term value to me i wouldn't really have a preference and i'd probably pick either gpl or mpl like i would still pick uh, the GPL it's, uh, or some kind of thing, something that's copyleft uh, compliant because I want it to be, you know, possible for everyone to benefit, not just the, you know, a company who sees it and takes advantage of it. Like the, you mentioned, uh, Jill mentioned Apple, you know, for a lot of people don't know that there is a lot of BSD related stuff inside of the OS 10. And they were able to do that because the license allowed them to do that, whatever they wanted. And, uh, the G- so the GPL and MPL are the things that I would consider and maybe even dual license the project with both of them because there are some times where if you want to get some software into like an app store of sorts, you couldn't do it without because the GPL is not like compatible with their s- terms of service or whatever. And the MPL would allow you to mm-hmm. have that functionality. So you could kind of do both. And since the MPL is compatible with the GPL, it's you know mm-hmm. it, it is possible to do a, a, a combination that way. Of so, course, Michael chooses the Microsoft license. I, no, it's Mozilla. No, he likes that. Oh, hybrid. Mozilla. I'm a, oh, I'm a Firefox <laughs> fanboy, and that's why it makes sense that okay. I choose the NPL. Yeah. But it, there Shouldn't are some we, pros and cons to both of them anyway. <laughs> Shouldn't we always be asking the the question as to why is it that it's not compatible with the GPL? What parts are incompatible, and what part of that might be unacceptable to us? Well, in terms of the GPL, typically something to be incompatible with the GPL is because it doesn't uh, like the whole you have to release the code underneath this license too. like mm-hmm. that's the main thing that makes something incompatible because a lot of people don't want to release it under that. And mm-hmm. the MPL is compatible with the GPL because it 
uh, it requires you to keep the source open and relicense it under under the MPL as well. But it also allows it to be used in conjunction with proprietary software, whereas the GPL does not. So that's why those that's why they're it's it's both compatible with the GPL and proprietary in a way. And that's not to say that it's the best license just outright, but it is a license that is worth considering because you still get a lot of the benefits from the GPL, but you don't have the fear from some companies who might see that and go, oh, no, I don't want to do that because it doesn't allow me to do whatever I want with your stuff. Oh, when I was have flexible okay. Michael AI. <laughs> well, I was going to say, Jill, when I was writing the software Michael AI, which I knew was going to change the world. And I imagined uh, <laughs> Apple was going to adopt it. It would be your new personal assistant there. Android was going to adopt it. It would be your new personal assistant there. Uh, the whole world was going to change at this. I decided to do an MIT license uh, because I'm selfless, nice. and that's actually what Neil mm -hmm. chose for me, um, which I really appreciate, Neil, um, out there. So it's free for anybody. No strings attached. Go change. Okay. I'm going to have to – we're going to have to edit world. this because he chose MPL. Oh, darn. <laughs> So, Neil, thanks for choosing MPL that now I can make money <laughs> off of this and there are strings attached. <laughs> there are no strings attached. You can use it however and you after want after giving to, really. Michael a hard time for the entire episode of using the Microsoft public license, then he chooses that for the Michael AI. <laughs> the, well, yeah. I figured if you're going to use Michael AI, you need the a Microsoft license. license. Okay, again, so, to, to be clear, everyone, it's the Mozilla public license. It's oh. not Microsoft. Oh. <laughs> it's going to be known as the Michael AI public license from now on. Yes. The Michael, Michael, AI. Oh, <laughs> the Michael, Michael public license. Yes. Oh, this is great. I love it. I'm using MPL for everything now. I'm using MPL for everything too. Yes. It's settled. <laughs> it's actually good. We talk about the fact that you didn't know what the license was because it is important to know that if you don't have a license on your project, you are not open. You, like A lot of people think they just put the code out there and they're done, but people will just avoid the code completely if they don't have a license attached because they don't know what they can expect from the code. It's because if you have no license at all, it's effectively proprietary and copyrighted, and that way people wouldn't want to use it. I've seen a lot of projects that are, I was very tempted to try, but then I saw no license. Like, well, now I'm not going to use this. Because there's there's no chance there's no way for me to know that they're not going to all of a sudden decide to make it you know outright proprietary in the future. So if you don't have a license, think about one of the fives we talked about in this show. Think about not changing the world, Ryan. Yeah, think about it. Right. <laughs> and also, I mean, you can you can choose which one you want, but just to be clear, the most the I think the most helpful to the open source system is the GPL or MPL. That's just my opinion. Mm -hmm. Microsoft. Mozilla. <laughs> this episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. You can get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash DLN. Bitwarden is an awesome piece of software. It is a password manager that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. And Bitwarden does this by creating multiple different types of tools. So we have a secured vault to store all of your passwords in, and you can automatically fill in passwords in the login form so you don't have to do that part. But you also want to use the auto generator tool because it allows you to make the passwords 
passwords as strong as you possibly want, where you want to use passwords or passphrases. And it makes it so you don't have to worry about what the passwords are, where they are, or how to put them in because it handles all of that for you. And you have access to this on multiple different types of devices, whether it's your web browser or your mobile apps or desktop applications, or even on the command line. Bitwarden also seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end encryption before it ever leaves your devices. So you know you're the only person with access to your data, which is a very important piece for me. And another important piece is that they are focused on open source. That's right. Bitwarden is an open source project and you can get started with it by going to bitwarden.com slash DLN. And did I mention you can get started for free? Well, you can, but I also think you want to check out their premium account because you get so much cool stuff. You get one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, priority customer service, Bitwarden Send, which is a new fe- feature that you can send f- send files back and forth. It's fantastic. Check it out. You get all of this for less than a dollar per month. That's right. Less than a dollar per month gets you access to all of these great features. And they also have other things like the family or family accounts or the business accounts. So you can help people get started with a password manager if they've never used it before, which for me is a fantastic feature that I've helped my family get started with it because there are so many great things about password managers, but they also can kind of be complicated if you've never tried them before. And that's why Bitwarden is so fantastic. So go to bitwarden.com slash to get started. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring Destination Linux. So the news this week is quite disturbing in my mind. When I read this, I was just so upset and I was instantly thinking of all the listeners that we have in Australia, which is one of the third largest places that download this podcast. So we have lots of listeners there who care about their privacy, their security. And in this week, Tutanota released an article, was the first one that caught my attention, although lots of companies since have released their opinions and thoughts on this, in a bill that was rushed through the parliament that opens the door for surveillance at a scale that frankly should scare everyone. In my mind, I see these type of things and I think it's kind of like a testing ground. If they can get the people in Australia to deal with this, to put up with this, then other countries' leaders will go, hey, maybe we can pass a similar law and do the same thing too. This new bill allegedly allows the police to hack your device, collect or delete your data, and take over your social media accounts like some dystopian future here that you would see in a sci-fi movie without sufficient safeguards wow. to prevent abuse of these new powers. Without the- sufficient safeguards? Uh, just to clarify there. No safeguards. There's no judicial oversight on this. None. Yeah. It's so scary. It's a police state. (laughs) It it really is. And this surveillance legislation amendment, identify and disrupt, Bill 2020, gives the Australian Federal Police, AFP, and the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission three new powers for dealing with online crime. Data disruption warrant gives the police the police, the ability to disrupt data by modifying, copying, adding, or deleting it. This is like Judge Dredd, the jury, the executioner, all in one here. Network activity warrant allows the police to collect intelligence from the devices or networks that are used or likely to be used by those subject to the warrant. Account takeover warrant allows the police to take control of an online account, social media, for the purpose of gathering information for an investigation. Of course, we know the key word here is suspect you of anything. So let's say you just happen to be a little deviant out there talking about privacy and open source and they don't like it anymore and they could suspect you of a crime. 
one of the scariest words I ever heard dealing with police was it's officer discretion, whether they take you to jail or not. Those type of things are just scary and they should be scary to everyone there. They can make and make suspect you of any crime they want simply because they don't like you anymore. Um, with pre when presented with such warrant from the administration appeals, tribunal, Australian companies, system administrators must comply and actively help the police to modify, add copy or delete the data of a person under investigation, refusing to comply could have one end up in jail for up to 10 years in jail. If you don't comply with one of their requests for takeover. Yeah. This, this is, if nothing else, shows how much surveillance is power, why your privacy is so important. They want power over the people. And I hope all of our listeners in Australia and really everyone around the world gets involved to talk about how unbelievably dangerous this law here is. Yeah. And the fact that even it says that you can modify, copy, add, and delete things, that means you could basically create uh, false information. You could That's plant right. data. Mm -hmm. And claim that this person is suspecting, oh, no, we've we've proven that you have this because we changed it so that you do. Like, that sort of stuff is just, like, insane, really. I The thing that shocked me most about this, uh, it's not necessarily shocking that places pass very sweeping legislation that encompasses a, a, a broad range of powers that, of course, never going to be abused by the by the fine people that will enforce them. But the thing that was weird to me is... No judicial oversight. There's no, it isn't a, we go to a court and say, here's why we think this person has done this. And so this is what we want in return. It's just, we get to do it. And like Michael said, Hey, uh, we found, we found criminal stuff on your phone. Well, I wasn't on my phone. Oh yeah. Yeah. I was on your phone. There's a specific tool, Noah, that is out there in the wild that allows a backdoor into iPhones and Android devices. It's created from an Israeli company. It's been out for a long time, but the public's really starting to learn about it as it's come out in other podcasts and, and other sources of news and things about this particular tool that's being used. One of the interesting things about the people who are investigating is the tool was supposed to be used just for government to stop terrorism and those type of things. And the company behind it talks very openly about the fact that they believe they've helped stop terrorism because of having this tool that allows backdoors into these devices and things. But what they also found in the investigation is that the tool was being used by certain governments in a corporate warfare manner. For instance, there was a particular case of um, somebody doing science behind sugary drinks and the impact it has on health. And there was people who were within that company that had this tool now hacked into their device that was supposed to be just for government to learn about the activism of the people who are trying to talk about the dangers of sugary drinks and things for corporations. So your point there, what you're talking about is you can say that the purpose of this bill is to save the children or save terrorism, but what actually happens with these tools no matter what they claim to be the purpose is that they get abused and they get used for purposes that they were never meant to be used for. And I've yet to see a single example where that's not the case. Every single time it gets used and abused when you give this type of power away. And every single time people are willing to give away their rights and freedoms when their heartstrings are pulled on, because what they'll say in the Australian government is, but you don't want to stop terrorism. You don't want to protect the children. And that's, that's what right. they'll use to, to pull on the heartstrings of the public. Yeah. Imagine BitTorrent. Imagine downloading Ubuntu on BitTorrent. You remember that whole fiasco uh, being uh, sent to jail for 10 years for that? Yeah. Yep. 
It's pro- just yeah. so scary, you know, and having no, like Noah and, and Michael and Ryan have all been saying no judicial oversight is scary. You know, that that's close to me to fascism, honestly. Yep. <laughs> it's very, it's yeah. scary. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, the idea that, you know, you say you mentioned the whole Ubuntu torrent thing. I mean, they could just say you torrented whatever they wanted to say. That's right. Because yeah. they basically said that they could change, they could do whatever they want with this with no oversight. And they pushed it in with, what was it, 24 hours? Yep. It's what you do when you're passing a bill that is truly for the people, right? Yeah, right. you pass it as quickly as possible under underneath the shadow of the night. Yeah, that's yeah. what you do. Totally. Don't yeah. let anybody know that you're even trying. That's 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 how Listen, you, you tinfoil hat wearing Linux people don't <laughs> understand. Police have never been known to plant false evidence and things like that, Michael. You're ridiculous. Come on. Right. Right. And here's the thing. <laughs> I'd be the first to say I I do believe I I on I honest to God, believe that most people go into law enforcement because they want to make the society they live in better, right? Because they want to help people and because they want to do good things. The problem isn't with 99% of law enforcement. The problem is with the 1% of human corruptibility when push comes to shove and it's, I know this guy is guilty. I just can't prove it. Man, if I just drop these files on there, then the guy who I know is guilty goes to jail, right? And right. and that's where it becomes problematic. And also yep. just real quick, you ever heard of the phrase a few bad apples? It's a, it's used yeah. to dismiss something saying it's not that big a deal, it's just a few. But the actual phrase, they they always stop at that point and they don't continue the full phrase. The full phrase says a few bad apples spoils the whole bunch or the whole orchard. Like that's the point of the phrase, not to just dismiss a few are not a big deal. It's to say that just a few can ruin it all. That's the whole point of the phrase. So this yeah. is a law that it seems like it's basically saying they can spoil as much as they want. Do whatever they want. This is scary. And I, I really need people out there who care about their privacy and security and this stuff. Get involved in your local with your local lawmakers and look at these laws that are coming through because this could happen anywhere. This could happen in the U.S. tomorrow. It could happen. People were talking about in the patron chat about New Zealand potentially, you know, would maybe would follow this. Like these laws can start spreading like wildfire. We need to be loud about how angry we are about this type of thing happening there in brotherhood with all of our friends in Australia. I, I tell you what, I'll leave us on a, on, a, on a good note, though. The good news is that in a post-Snowden world, software manufacturers and people have become hip to this stuff, right? And so we were kind of anticipating this long before the shoe dropped. So the good news is you have places like Matrix and and software like Element and things like Tor and tools like Tails that enable you to retain your privacy basically regardless of what the laws are, right? And so when you come across an unjust law and you say to yourself, you know what? I don't want you to take off. Go ahead and monitor my traffic. You go ahead and monitor my traffic. All my traffic, all you're going to see is a bunch of hashes and it's all encrypted. And then it goes from one place to the other because you know what? You don't get to tell me uh, that you get to take over my privacy. So go ahead and monitor my traffic. You want to try and change the content of the message I'm sending? Well, good luck spoofing my signature because that's what you're going to need to do in order to to send a message in a cryptographically secure software like Signal or Element or, or any of the multitude of choices that you have out there. So the technology, as bad as this law is, and as horrific as this is and what it says about privacy and honestly what it foreshadows is coming to privacy the rest of the world, I would say that 
at least we have the good fortune of we have five years of source code and tools that are on our side that were specifically built just in case this ever happened. They kind of thought about yeah, that, though, I Noah. I love that point. But they kind of thought about that because Australia also introduced a bill, I believe it was last year, that makes utilizing encryption services illegal to some point. And so there's there was news last year about them doing that. And I think it only at this time impacts products that are made there in Australia. Like they can't mm -hmm. enforce it across other services. But think about how easy it would be for them to change the law then because they can pass it under the under night in 24 hours to say any tool that's in Australia now is illegal if it has any encryption. So yes, you're right. We Thankfully, we do have safety today, but don't underestimate a government that's bold enough to pass something like this won't go the next step to take that away too. So Totally. I, I think where, where, where we're going to get to though is like that, that is a really dicey thing to actually enforce, right? Because you can't outright bad encryption or banking breaks. So you have to give people some encryption, but it has to be backdoorable encryption. And so then how, I mean, how do you know which tools the Australian <laughs> government has? And, and, what, and if they have to come out and be public about that, here's the tools you can use because we can look in on you. It's a PR disaster. And so I think, I think that will be a, a even tougher nut to crack uh, than this last one. But I see your point when, the, when, when they get the final rule, it, it is hard to say what, you know, what can you yeah. really do? I mean, you're risking jail time, if nothing else, right? Now, Jill, talk something happy. Football. Okay. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I have to. Try following I, that one, Jill. So, Sports ball. To, to spread sadness out. <laughs> I'm sorry. It took me so she's trying. She's trying to expel the sadness. Yeah. Expel the sadness. So the fun game we're going to cover today is called Access Football. Yeah, I know. All of us in the Linux community, most of us don't play sport ball. We're on nerds. <laughs> what are you talking about? I love some old pigskin. When Michael came over, why we played pigskin we, every single day. We hit to the gridiron instantly the second yeah. I got there. Yeah. Baseballs are made out of pigskin now? I don't know. <laughs> so since we have a worldwide audience, it's important to clarify that we're talking about proper American football, not the kicking the ball around the field. Yeah, type, improper. Otherwise known as American soccer. Boo. No, I'm kidding. I like soccer. Yeah, the one that makes the most sense being called football. Right. That, Not that one. This, the Shut one. it, Michael. <laughs> American football. Yeah, big skin. Uh, I mean, to be fair. Just to be clear, for those who don't know, the English named both soccer and football, so it's not our fault. Just yeah, yeah. not our fault. It's Zeb's fault. <laughs> it's Zeb's fault. There He's Irish. Go. I don't think him directly. <laughs> He's Irish. So Axis Football is a simulation-style football game featuring a franchise mode, massive customization, and realistic gameplay. And the game has a native Linux support and currently quite a few positive reviews. So if you're looking to play a sports game on Linux, then check out Access Football. I think it'd be actually a lot of a lot of fun, and it's the proper type of football, <laughs> known as U.S. pigskin. Jeez, football. Jill, why are you so against <laughs> European football, Jill? It's oh, not like no, I wrote no, this. Not. Actually, I love watching uh, uh, rugby, uh, Australian rules rugby, and and English rules as well. So it this, but this game has. Uh, lots of customization um, than most RPGs usually have. And I think it would actually be a really fun game to play. Yeah, honestly. if you're into like Madden and all of that type of stuff, yeah. if you're into football and, the and sports, games. first, yeah. let me say nerd. 
because <laughs> you said it to us all the time when we were in the software. So if you're in the sport, anyways, <laughs> the point is that uh, if you're into football and sports and stuff, it's 29 bucks on Steam. So there you go. Yeah, and also it's yeah. a simulation style game, but it's not a simulator. It's not like one of those. Yeah. Uh, you know that uh, you don't. You're still playing the game similar to like Madden and that kind of thing, but you also have like dynasty modes and that sort of stuff too. Mm-hmm. You know, I I actually do play some sport ball, yes, and I do like playing some virtual baseball games. Those are fun, so so this would be fun. And honestly, it's it's actually a far far more cooler and f- more sophisticated than the Mattel Electronic football handheld game I spent many hours playing back in the seventies. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, let's be honest. If anyone here is going to be playing a sport <clears throat> outside of Jill, uh, it's going to be on a computer. So yeah, just- <laughs> very true. I've been doing my finger push-ups every morning. Uh, I play beach man. volleyball. So. <laughs> I used to play basketball. It's been a while, but I used to. Although it's yeah. funny because um, you were talking about how they it's you know it's more sophisticated than the the Mattel electronic football game, and it made yeah. me think about like I wonder how much how much more uh, sophisticated is it from Tecmo Bowl. So I remember playing that for hours oh, yeah. as a kid. Uh, so yes. good. <laughs> I remember that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, if you want to check it out, it is Access Football 2021 on Steam. And by the way, there's been multiple different versions of it, and they do it by year, just like Madden does. So that's why it's Access Football Very 2021. Cool. So let's talk now to the software spotlight. We have something that a lot of people might already know about, but if you don't, you will get a lot of benefit from it. And you also might have seen it in a lot of places just in screenshots because it is very often featured inside of screenshots uh, when people are showing off their desktop and showing what operating system they use, and that is NeoFetch. NeoFetch, there are are many different ways to get information about your hardware in Linux, but NeoFetch is one of those things that you just run in the command line, and then it shows up a ton of information. Like, it'll show information about your operating system, the software, like the hardware you have, also different types of software like your your DE and that sort of thing, and it also shows it in a very nice, uh, aesthetically pleasing approach inside of the terminal, including a logo of the distribution that you're using. Now, it might not be able to detect some times depending on your configuration but you can also specify like which distro you want if you want to have that specific logo to be made inside of the the screenshot but neofetch has support for dozens of different distributions to create an ascii version of the logo and that stuff to just show you all the information so if you uh, are wanting to share your uh, your demo of uh, you know showing showing like your desktop and all the configurations you have and you also want to make it easy to list out all of the configurations and it, this is a great way to do that and also apparently it has support for macOS for some I just did the macOS one and yeah. it does indeed <laughs> like I, I'm in Garuda Linux but if I do the switch the dash dash ASCII underscore distro space macOS right. it shows an Apple logo there so. <laughs> That's pretty funny, so but it's still under OS says Groota Linux. So. Right. But if you type yeah. just NeoFetch by itself, it'll give you the system-related stuff and the logo that you typically would you're supposed to have, not the Mac one. <laughs> right. <laughs> and also, if you're new in the Linux community, you will see all over YouTube, this is how people show their systems. Yep. Oh, YouTube, yeah. Reddit, yeah. Twitter. It's very common that you'll see yeah. inside. You'll see a screenshot of a... Of a the desktop environment and everything, but then you also see a terminal just sitting right on top with NeoFetch right in there. And if you've ever mm-hmm. seen that and didn't know what it was, now you do. That's how I flex my hardware. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Our tip of the week this week is using CronTab to automate your scheduling. So one of the things I love about any tool, if it's built into every distribution you come across, those are the tools you really want to master and you really want to own because they'll save you no matter what you're doing. And even if the even if the distribution really wasn't designed, even the application wasn't designed for doing the thing that you want to do, you can kind of shoehorn your way into it if you know your way around some of these very basic tools. CronTab is absolutely one of those tools. And so we were working on a POS system, had to automate some stuff and didn't have a way to do that and said, oh, we just use CronTab. So if you've not used CronTab, it is the built-in scheduler to Linux that comes with virtually every distribution out there. And it allows you to schedule events as often as you need. And so essentially the first part is to write the script that you want to execute. And so that can be a collection of commands that you need to execute and be a single command that you need to execute. A common one might be an rsync command that you create a archive tar of uh, your data backups. And you can do that every night and then have a NAS pick it off of the uh, rsync it off of that machine and store it somewhere else and replicate it all over the place and make sure that you have a good backup. That might be something, a great place to get started yeah. with it. Uh, and so it, it's fantastic for doing backup routines, night times, that kind of stuff, uh, monthly backups, nighttime backups. So to get started, you'll use CronTab Tac E, and that's going to drop you into essentially a text document of the CronTab that you'll be able to, to set things up. And it's going to ask you for a couple of pieces of information. And so essentially you're going to put the, uh, it, we work from the inside out. So you're, you're going to start with the minutes, then you're going to put the hours, then you're going to put the days. And this is scheduling how often do you want it to run. So for example, if you just put uh, asterisks all the way across the board, you would get every minute of every hour of every day of every month. And obviously that would get excessive, right? So maybe you want to just do it on uh, zero, zero of the 12th hour of every month of every day. And, and so then, you know, the first two you would you would fill out. The problem is, and they give you a little guide when you open up CronTab the first time. The problem is, can get kind of confusing. Just talking about it, I'm Thank getting confused. You. And I do yes. it, you know, I'm, I'm confused <laughs> myself. So I have a tool for you that you might want to check out. It's crontab-generator.org. And what it does is it's a website. So it's a cloud-based utility, I guess. But it is a, it's a website where you can actually use radio buttons to check, hey, I want this backup to only kick off on, on every minute, but only on midnight. And maybe I, I change that. Maybe I want it to be at a specific minute. I want it to be on, uh, at midnight, on, right on the dot of every day of every month. Uh, of 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 every week, and it will spit out then the cron tab that you need to paste into your file, and it'll tell you, hey, this is what you this this is what you, this is what the the asterisks and what the numbers would be, and then below that, it actually gives you the opportunity to enter the command to execute. So this is where you put your script file, right? So if you're like me and you put them in opt slash scripts, um, you'd put you know opt opt slash script slash backup or nightly backup dot sh and then you can click generate cron tab file and it'll give you the zero zero star 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 slash opt slash scripts dot uh, backup dot sh and then you'll notice it'll even append uh, the little forward caret and then slash dev slash null, which is actually going to throw out the log. And so I'll let you know that you might want to actually specify a file there. You might want to put slash home slash or slash root slash, you know, cron log dot txt. And that way, in case your cron tab fails, if something goes wrong or something goes right and you just want to verify, you can log back in and cat that file out and see what your what your cron tab is doing. And so I use that all the time for backups. Log in, take a look at that 
that uh, that log file, make sure the backups, yep, they did indeed go the night before. So it's crontap-generator.org. Of course, we'll have links for you in the show notes as well as an outline because like I say, when just hearing that probably doesn't make a lot of sense. Once you actually type crontap tacky and you look at how it's set up on your system, it'll make a whole lot more sense. So start automating your things with crontap. I love your face for this uh, this tip and trick of the week, Noah, because yeah. I was one of those people that would look at people's examples and the tutorial and try to decipher what to put in there for the time and the month and the date that I wanted <laughs> for it. And because I don't use it enough, I use it yep. like at my home and things, but enough to memorize all that stuff. And sure. this Crontab generator, yes. dude, thank hey, you for listen, this. It's going to save so much time. I know that with the amount of filling of people's brains you do, you don't got a lot of spare room. So right. anytime we can offload room. something to a cloud service, we got to do that. I love you for it. And a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux, however you do it. We love your faces as well. And if you want more DL, you can become a patron, like all of the amazing people behind the scenes in the gigantic virtual stadium that has virtual drinks and virtual food and virtual conversations going on <laughs> all the time. You also get unedited versions of the show, VIP access to events and live recordings of Destination Linux every Sunday. Come hang out with the crew. In addition, every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern, we're now live at dealinlive.com. Now, the best part, everyone is invited to watch the recording of Destination Linux each and every week. We can't wait to see you in the chat. And also go right now to the DLN store at dealinstore.com where you can pick up some swag. We have t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, backpacks, aprons, so much stuff. And you can customize it just like how Jill did with the, the pink mug. There's so much cool stuff there. Go to dealinstore.com to check it out so you can get all of the great like merch for like the Linux 91 hat that Ryan is sporting, and the Linux is Everywhere shirt that Jill is sporting, and also so much more. Make sure to check out all our wonderful shows here on the Destination Linux Network. We have the fabulous Pseudo Show, the amazing Ask Noah Show, the very informative This Week in Linux, the awesome DOS Geek Channel, the wonderful DL DLN Extend, one of my favorite shows of all time, Hardware Addicts. <laughs> and we have GameSphere and get your Fedora hat on with our latest show, the Fedora Podcast. So go to destinationlinux.network and subscribe to all these wonderful shows to keep those penguins marching and the full Monty of Linux and open source awesome sauce. And enjoy. Everybody have a great week. And remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. See you next bye week. Bye-bye. Yeah, twelve while you grill. Yeah, twelve while you grill. For twenty four ninety nine, you can twelve while you grill too. And if you call but right wait. now, you'll get three, three. <laughs> but wait, there's more. <laughs> I like how that your your that Michael A. bought his license so you can put it with proprietary stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was the only way that Apple would allow him to integrate it with Siri. Exactly, that's what he wanted. Can we copyright that version now? I mean, we, we, we're we going to have to put a license on it, but yes. Yeah, I don't think anybody <laughs> will want to fork that one. If you want it, then you got to put a license on it. <laughs> I uh, Just so you know, Ryan, I made a note for the outtakes. Oh, come on. <laughs> Three, two, one. What happened? Why are you laughing at us? I thought I what? did a good manly clap. I don't understand. 
<laughs> you remember last week when you uh, hit your microphone? Yeah. I hit my microphone. <laughs> <laughs> you get it oh back. Oh, my All goodness. Right. Oh, my goodness. All right. Do that awesome counting thing you can do again. Yeah, okay. <laughs>